Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Doug Ford's road to victory of the last election was pretty smooth sailing, but how does he plan on taming the worst inflation in over 40 years? And what does the federal government need to do to help Canadians fighting inflation? The January 6th committee down in the States uh, shifts their focus to Donald Trump, and political commentator Brian J. Karam is going to join us to talk about what's been going on and the implications. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. A lot of the focus today is going to be on the economy, your economy, my economy, and of course inflation. And uh, uh, for those of you who thought we were going to be able to tame this monster, uh, well, the news today is not that great. Uh, The annual inflation rate has skyrocketed to its highest level in nearly 40 years, fueled essentially by soaring gasoline prices. Don Kelly has details. Inflation rose 7.7% from May of last year, the biggest increase since January 1983, when it shot up 8.2%. The jump from April 6.8% was mostly due to a whopping 48% increase in gas prices. Grocery prices were up 9.7% from a year ago, matching April's increase, with the prices for nearly everything you put in your grocery cart going higher. Don Kelly, The Canadian Press. Well, this is going to be, uh, as uh, Martin Red Cohn uh, writes in the Toronto Star, probably the biggest challenge uh, for newly re-elected uh, Premier Doug Ford. Uh, all kinds of promises made about building this, building that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but people are concerned right now about paying the bills and, and putting food on the table. Uh, so how does a government tackle something like this? To uh, get some insight into this, we're so pleased to welcome to the program Michael Veal. Michael is a professor and academic director of the Statistics Canada Research Data Centre at uh, McMaster University in Hamilton. Uh, professor, a pleasure to have you with us today. Thanks so much for the time. Good to be here. Thanks. Uh, how do you slay this dragon? I mean, you know, the governments have made all kinds of promises, and uh, we're hearing from economists right now that are saying, look, at people need help. They may need even some financial assistance, but that's only going to bring the inflation numbers even higher than they are right now. Uh, we can't just sit here and, and wait for the economic cycle to turn around here. Is there any, any, there's no magic button here to push, I assume, but, but how does the government approach something like this? So there's no magic, as you say. If we think about it at the international level, we're not the only country facing this. Uh, the United States, in fact, has even higher inflation than we do. And so uh, part of it is that we're, we're all in the same boat. And part of it is that this is the aftermath of the pandemic. Uh, we ha- we spent a lot of money during the pandemic and we conducted a monetary policy which was consistent with keeping the economy going. Uh, but that has an aftermath and we're in the aftermath. So... It, 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 to use the old cliche, though, it sounded like a good idea at the time for the government to spend all that money uh, because people were in dire circumstances. Uh, but I didn't hear a whole lot of talk, Professor, at that time that this is the this is the the, the morning after. This is the ill effect. This is the hangover uh, from that kind of spending. Did did it catch us off guard, or was this something that was anticipated? I, I think it was largely anticipated. I think it's been worse than expected. And of course, one of the reasons is the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, issues with supply bottlenecks and the pandemic hasn't gone away as uniformly as we would have liked you know for example there are still supply chain issues coming from china um, as it has another uh, pandemic aftershock so i think we've we've had a bit of a perfect storm afterwards uh, but it was always clear that at some in some level the the bill gets has to get paid um, and we probably hoped for for a, a lower rate of inflation but we weren't going to escape entirely because after all uh, the the money supply was increased dramatically 
during the pandemic. And when basically inflation is when you've got uh, more money chasing the same number of goods. And, and therein lies the problem. But, you know, when you boil this down to, to each individual family uh, in, in, you know, in the communities, uh, I, and you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, the numbers are there. This is a global problem. It's not an Ontario problem, uh, not even a Hamilton problem. Uh, but, you know, if, if you're having trouble making ends meet, uh, angry people tend to want to blame somebody for their problems. And I guess governments are an easy target for this, aren't they? Well, I, I do think... Uh choices were made and and you know a part of the decision was effectively uh to ease the economic impact of the pandemic as much as possible um and accepting the possibility that there could be an aftermath and i think you're right that wasn't uh, a, a general public discussion uh but nonetheless i think that was implicit in the, in the decisions the government made uh we still should be very pleased that the economy rebounded so uh, rapidly during the pandemic i was surprised i would have thought for example, that we would not even now have achieved the same level of real output as a, a national economy as Canada is achieving now, uh, but we're in fact above that level. We've, we've more than bounced back in terms of purely economic terms, in terms of uh, production of the economy. Uh, but that doesn't mean that there aren't individuals who are in, in dire circumstances. Well, and that number seems to be growing, but, and, and you know, it, it's encouraging, I guess. You're right. The employment numbers are good. The, uh, you know, the, the productivity seems to be going up. Uh, but a lot of families are now saying, I don't see it. It doesn't seem to be impacting me in a positive manner right now. Uh, and, and governments are getting a little anxious, I guess, about this. There's an awful lot of pressure, and we're going to get into this in greater detail, uh, for governments to do something. Uh, but as you've mentioned to us, the fact that they wanted to help out during the pandemic is at least a contributing factor. Not the only factor, but a contributing factor to where we are right now. Some people are simply saying, you got to just ride this out. I know it hurts, but it's, it's there's not a whole lot we can do here. In the passage of time, is this going to get better as, as some of the things that you've just uh, mentioned to us as, as contributing factors uh, start to sort themselves out? Well, if nothing further bad happens, this this is likely to be the peak inflation number we're looking at. But of course, you know, forecasts are forecasts. Uh, yeah. But nonetheless, I don't anticipate the inflation rate to ease very much. I think it might go down a little bit, but not, not very much in the near future. Uh, so that's part of it. And, you know, governments could take various actions to try to ease the pain. Uh, the problem will be that that will entail borrowing more money, and our governments have already borrowed a lot of money. Uh, in the federal government case, primarily for the pandemic, uh, in the case of the province of Ontario, the province of Ontario already entered the pandemic in a poor financial situation, uh, and of course the pandemic didn't help. And there's a hue and cry for things like, you know, relieving some of the price of the pumps, et cetera, with, you know, provincial taxes and federal taxes, I guess, in situations like that. I know uh, President Biden south of the border is, is starting to go lean in that direction. We haven't heard a whole lot from Ottawa on that. What about the Bank of Canada? Do they have a role to play here at all in, in trying to, to, to tame this? Or I, I know the interest rate uh, increases have been significant, and we're anticipating another one, I guess, uh, in the next round. Uh, is, is that helping us or hurting us right now? Well, I mean, the way this works is that the economy has to be slowed down so that there's less demand and that reduces inflation. And so that's, that's the only way out. Uh, we cannot persist in this, in this situation now where inflation continues to accelerate. So one of the reasons I believe inflation will ease is because the Bank of Canada's actions, increasing interest rates now and then increasing them again in the future, uh, will have an effect. But of course, the cost of that is slowing the economy down. And so there is this trade-off. It unfortunately is the only way we know of uh, reducing inflation uh, back to normal levels. 
do we have a little wiggle room there because things have rebounded a little faster than we thought we did? They were going to. Yeah, and I think that's why you see that the Bank of Canada has has been actually uh, not increasing interest rates as as much as they might have, uh, and they've you know their target inflation is two percent, right? And so they mm-hmm. should really have interest rates high if that would be their sole focus. But they are trying to balance it out with the growth in the economy. I personally think they've done a pretty good job of that, uh, but it does mean that inflation is is much higher than uh, anyone would like. What can individuals do? You mentioned, you know, we have to control spending, and that's at certainly the government level. Uh, but, you know, this is having an impact on all of us right now. Should we be changing plans? Should we be moderating our plans? Uh, you know, forget about, you know, making those big purchases right now. What, what, what role do we have to play here? Well, there are some individuals who are just going to be hard-pressed uh, in this situation, and, uh, and there isn't really very much they can do. It's a, it is a difficult situation for them. Uh, uh, there are, however, individuals who have done adequately during the pandemic, and some individuals, in fact, have done very well for various reasons. Uh, I think everybody in that situation should probably be a little bit more cautious uh, than uh, normal, because this is a very unusual situation. We do not know what's going to happen. For one thing, it could be that the central banks around the world, including the Bank of Canada, in increasing interest rates, could go a little bit too far and could uh, push the economy more towards a recession. Unemployment rates could start to go up, uh, those sorts of things. And so I do think that it, all of us should probably be prudent in our, in our choices, realizing that uh, if it happens that you're lucky enough for times to be good right now, uh, to recognize that that might not happen, depending on your, your individual circumstances, that might not continue. From a governmental standpoint, uh, you know, and I guess this is even human nature, uh, when things go kind of crazy like this, invariably we say, well, I, I have to get more money. That's all there is to it. I'm going to have to make more. I'm going to have to get a raise. I'm going to have to do something. Uh, and a number of government worker contracts are going to be up, uh, you know, teachers, et cetera, and th- this of nature. There's going to be an awful lot of pressure, I would think, on the Ford government here in Ontario, for instance, uh, to keep those numbers down because those unions are going to say, look at what's happening here. The cost of living has gone up. I've got to get more money. And uh, which begs the question, do salary increases like this uh, that are going to be that's obviously going to be the ask. We've already heard from some of the union leaders about that. Is that going to hurt this issue? Because there seems to be a debate going on there now as to whether wage increases are, are, are insignificant or if they're a major factor in making inflation worse. Oh, I, I think there's no doubt that if we get into a cycle of, of wage increases that are as, as high as current inflation rate, um, that will perpetuate the inflation rate and, and it will continue. Uh, I don't know how that's going to play out, uh, but I do think it's, it's potentially very messy. Uh, if you think, for example, in the case of Ontario, where many public sector unions have been working under a 1% increase uh, rule. Uh, you know, can that continue? Will there be strikes? Whatever will happen. Uh, and, you know, that's yet to be seen. And is, does it follow then from an economic standpoint that if people demand and get some of those increases, uh, that that simply means that the price of whatever it is that they're producing is going to go up as well, which is, is only going to make it harmful for the rest of us? Yes, and and, and also the... The, that's one factor. And the other factor is the increases themselves effectively increase the demand for products and also push up the prices for products that way as well. Is there anything in the forecasting of, that you've seen anyway, Professor, that indicates that uh, some of these, as you say, some of the factors that we talked about at the beginning of the conversation here uh, can work themselves out? We don't know what's going to happen in Ukraine, unfortunately, but supply chain, things of this nature. I just 
was at an auto dealership yesterday doing getting some servicing on the car and uh there's there's not much on the lot these days and as a matter of fact if you listen to the commercials they say order your new car now now you you can't walk in the lot and look at it but you can order it right now which indicates to me that we're you know we're not at the end of this this cycle yet yeah that's true but that that's going to work its way through that's that's part of the process by i believe a year from now uh inflation will be considerably lower i think that's the the odds are inflation will be considerably lower uh some of these problems will have passed uh but you know a year is a, is a long time and that's just not affects as we've talked about the people who are suffering hardship but also affects people who are who are trying to run a business like a car dealership so how do you so they're going to have to do some plans and they're going to have to do some 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 variations i guess on their business plans for these sorts of things and governments i guess are going to have to tighten their belt and cut back on spending uh as well uh which you know and just after an election of course we were told about highways they're going to be built and constructed etc and i don't want to get into the debate about whether or not we need the highway but are are those projects going to be affordable now well, it depends to some extent whether their costs will go up at the same rate as all the other costs. And, if, and that's some of the things we've been talking about in terms of will there be wage increases that are commensurate with these increases in inflation and whatever. Uh, I suspect that most of those projects will go ahead uh, if other types of approvals are obtained. Uh, I think that the, the mindset of both levels of government now is, is pretty much full steam ahead. Uh, even though I'm not entirely sure it's wise, I expect that we'll see some measures from the federal government that will try to ease the impact of inflation on some individuals. Uh, we've noticed that provincial governments, uh, just before the election in Ontario, uh, there was the uh, refund of uh, driver's uh, registration fees. Mm-hmm. Uh, the province mm-hmm. of Quebec uh, has made basically a, a grant to all individuals in the province of Quebec, and I would be surprised if they do that sort of thing again. Uh, so I, there may be those sorts of measures. Uh, unfortunately, uh, each level of government is borrowing money to do that, and, and that is a negative, obviously. And there's an awful lot of pressure on the federal government to curtail some of that stuff right now, too. One of the big criticisms, I guess, of the federal government, because you were talking about some of the support programs that were put in place when the, the pandemic really hit, uh, was that it was basically everybody qualified. It just, you know, they just said, yeah, apply for it and you'll get the money and we'll sort this out later on. Uh, if they are going to entertain this idea of, of assistance for people that are really hard done by, uh, should there be some sort of a qualifier for that then uh, so that we're not just doling out checks that people probably don't really need them? I mean, everybody wants more money if they can get it, but do they really need it or is it? Is it something that should be just directed at those that are really hard done by? Yeah, I don't know what the federal government will do. Uh, but you mentioned, for example, they, they will be under some pressure to do something about gasoline taxes. Um, yeah. I don't think that they'll have another measure like a CERB or a measure like that of, of, of handing out checks. Um, you know, going back to that period, it, it was a really difficult time, not only for individuals, but for government policymakers. And they had to do some things that that, you know, you don't find in the textbooks. Uh, and, and we knew that part of the aftermath was also going to be there, that there would be, there would be problems now uh, caused by the, the nature of those programs at the time. And I don't think we can go back and sort of uh, Monday morning quarterback and say, you know, they did do so well. Mostly those were pretty good programs. But I do think that uh, now that the economy is, is pretty close to full employment, that's not going to be the direction right now. The direction now is people largely who are working we're really being squeezed by inflation. Exactly. Professor, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate our conversation. Very nice talking to you. Thank you very much for having me. Take care. You too. Professor Michael Veal from uh, McMaster University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. 
been talking about cost of living and the impact it's having on us, our grocery bills, uh, price at the pumps, on and on and on. And let's face it, we're all looking for a little relief, a little good news. And uh, it's it's not really coming our way. Uh, as we've heard on the news for the second time this year, milk prices will be rising. A 2.5% increase is going to kick in, not till September. Uh, but it's not the sort of news we wanted. Global's Tina Trujani has details. The latest increase comes after a nearly 8.5% jump in February. The price consumers will actually see on the shelf at grocery stores come September will be even higher after things like labor, packaging, and transportation are all factored in. Professor of Food Distribution and Policy at Dalhousie University, Sylvain Charlebois, says prices will also be rising for things like cheese and yogurt. Let's face it, that's not where the dairy industry actually makes its money. It's mostly in dairy products and we're expecting dairy products to become even more expensive as we go through the winter into the spring. With inflation where it is, the dairy farmers of Canada had asked the Canadian Dairy Commission for another increase this year due to higher production costs. The price of fertilizer, for example, has jumped over 40% since August of last year. Tina Trajani, Global News. It's just one other brick in the wall here that, that makes things so frustrating, I guess, for, for consumers over the next little while. Uh, so what do we do? What do we make sense of it? And more importantly, what's government supposed to be doing in a situation like this? Uh, I want to bring David McDonald into the conversation. David, of course, is the uh, senior economist with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. David, great to have you back on the show. Thanks so much for the time today. Sure. Thanks for having me. Every time, as we were just talking about on the show just before you joined us, uh, when things go bad and, and sometimes go from bad to worse, as they seem to be doing these days, uh, uh, there's going to be a lot of pressure on governments to do something, you know, whether it's Doug Ford, whether it's the prime minister, whether it's Christy Freeland, I mean, pick a name. Uh, and, and I know that, you know, the federal government responded. You and I talked about that the other day when uh, Christy Freeland uh, made her major economic statement, which was really just kind of a regurgitation of stuff that was in the budget and said, we are doing what we can. Uh, most people I've talked to since she made that statement say, yeah, well, it's not helping me. So what, what happens here? What, what can and should governments do in a situation like this? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the speech last week uh, was a, a recap of things that happened in the last two budgets. There wasn't an, any new measures to address inflation per se. I mean, the folks that would get more money due to these measures that they introduced two budgets ago, I mean, that, that they'll benefit from that. Um, I think that, you know, one of the, one of the realists, uh, a couple of things that the federal government and provincial governments sh- should do. First of all, many of the provincial governments don't index their basic benefits to inflation. So that's one thing they should do immediately and they could do immediately. So they don't, you know, the, the federal government really carries most of the load in terms of transfers for low income seniors, low income families with children, uh, and low income working families. Uh, most of that comes from the federal government and those benefits are indexed. Sometimes they're indexed fairly slowly. And so we're seeing this increase in prices now, but we won't see the increase in these these benefits in terms of like the transfer value in your bank account for for months to come. That could happen more quickly at the federal level. At the provincial level, sometimes the provinces don't index them at all. And so they just remain the same year to year. Inflation still eats away at their value. That's another thing that the provinces in particular could do. In addition to indexing basic things for low-income families like social assistance, which is which is almost universally unindexed across the provinces outside of New Brunswick and Quebec. You know, the other thing that some of the provinces have experimented with, particularly Quebec, is one-time payments. This doesn't stop the increase in prices, but it does help lower-income families pay for those increases. This is something we did during the pandemic. So, you know, a one-time transfer to everybody who gets the GST credit, which is targeted to lower-income families of a couple hundred dollars, would help folks pay for higher gas and food prices, even though it doesn't bring those prices down per se. I mean, my concern at this point is that 
these increases have been relatively rapid. Uh, much of them, uh, much of the increase is actually being driven by higher gasoline prices. A part, you know, the, most of that is what's happening in Ukraine, the war in Ukraine, which drove up the underlying price of oil. Some of it's also being driven by uh, a very, very compressed refining capacity in the U.S. Um, and as a result, we're seeing gasoline prices being pushed up. These are factors outside of our control, and they're factors outside of provincial or federal government control. Uh, I think the big concern now is that this big increase in inflation will push the central bank, the Bank of Canada, to increase its interest rates much more rapidly. The window is rapidly closing on a soft landing, which is to say that the Bank of Canada increases interest rates a little bit, uh, economic growth slows down a little bit, but we don't end up in a recession. That is becoming increasingly less likely. Uh, what's becoming increasingly more likely is that the Bank of Canada will overreact to these increases in inflation and engineer a recession. I mean, at present, we're not in a recession. There's no particular concern about a recession immediately. The concern is that the Bank of Canada will engineer a recession, and that's how we get inflation down. Uh, you know, economists think of a recession as two quarters of negative real GDP growth, which seems pretty dry for regular Canadians. What it's going to mean is substantial job loss, particularly for lower income earners, uh, as well as no opportunity or very limited opportunities to increase wage rates. So at present, workers are way behind inflation, uh, you know, inflation this month at 7.7%, at, uh, but the increase in wages is only three and a half. Uh, and so, you know, we're, we're way behind uh, on wages. And if we do, you know, if the Bank of Canada does engineer a recession, we'll in essence lock in these lower wage rates that never caught up to this inflationary increase. And so you see a real and permanent decline in workers' ability to purchase goods and services. And, and you've seen the debate in the media, well, some of the quotes from different people on, on both sides of this issue here, David. Some say a recession is inevitable. Uh, you know, President Biden, I guess, with his interview over the weekend said not necessarily. Uh, others seem to be, you know, storing up, uh, you know, supplies and, and batting down the windows. Elon Musk just announced that after saying, no, he's not going to lay anybody off. Uh, now he is uh, because he's anticipating that there's going to be that, that recession that you've talked about here. And then you've got the other pressure on, on governments, uh, you know, as you mentioned about indexing pensions and a number of things. Uh, and then you get a report out from Scotiabank yesterday that, that is pleading with the government to cut planned government spending to help tame rampant inflation. Well, you can't have it both ways here. Yeah, I mean, you can attempt to protect lower income households from inflation um, through things like uh, one time supports. Um, I mean, one of the other things actually that will protect households from inflation is if, if, you, if you have a young child, uh, the the huge drop that we're going to see this year in child care fees due to the national program will mean that families with young children will see a negative CPI. I mean, they won't experience this 7.7 increase, which is the average across all families. Uh, they'll experience, a, you know, probably a minus 10% decrease in their cost because they're going to save so much on childcare. And that's a government expense. Um, and so this is the idea is that you can reduce CPI in, in some cases by targeting particular issues, uh, you know, particular areas of the CPI. I think housing is another area that the federal government could be better targeting. Uh, we could change the underwriting rules, for instance, for mortgages to make it much less profitable for investors uh, in the hopes that they wouldn't come and buy houses and therefore the price of houses would come down. That is a part of the CPI. I mean, fundamentally, it's not being driven by the price of houses, being driven by the war in Ukraine and, and constrained refining capacity in the U.S. Um, but, you know, the, the housing market is something that, that we have some control over versus the other features we don't have much control over. I think it is worth pointing out that a recession isn't inevitable. 
the recession isn't in and of itself going to happen. Any recession that we see in the next six months will be a recession that we caused, not because it was inevitable, but because the Bank of Canada is so committed to this inflation goal that they're absolutely willing to put hundreds of thousands of Canadians out of work and plunge the economy, which is quite strong right now, into a recession. But that's a choice. So it's not inevitable by any stretch. Um, this will be a policy choice that this recession happens, or it could be anyway. I mean, it could be if the if if we don't see a soft landing. Is there a precedent for this, Dave? Could, could you look back a generation or so? I mean, I know there's an economic cycle, and you know there's going to be upturns, downturns, and that sort of thing here. But it, uh, this is the first time in about a hundred years we've gone through a pandemic like this, and it's uh, it's it's a different kind of financial scenario than it was, for instance, in 0809, which was just the economic cycle seemingly working in situations like that, and and governments had to get involved in that too. Uh, have we learned anything from from the history to, to be able to address this in a better fashion? Yeah, I mean, certainly very low and stable inflation has been the case for the last 25 years since the since the early 90s, in essence. Uh, and so we are very used to that. 25, what's that? 30, 35 years now. Uh, so we're used yeah. to that scenario. Uh, but there certainly have been periods in Canada where we've seen high inflation. And we have absolutely seen in Canada periods where the Bank of Canada overreacted and caught a, a recession in order to get inflation back in line. Uh, the 1980 81 recession is a good example of that, where we saw at that point it was, uh, you know, we saw 12% inflation, uh, and the Bank of Canada brought it back down to about 6%. That was considered the low at the time. Uh, now we're, you know, we're just above 6%, and we're considered consider that extremely high. Uh, and the Bank of Canada managed to get it down those six points, and they did it after a, you know, a brutal multi year recession. And so, that I think is one of the differences between you know the 1981 recession, for instance, and the 2008-9 recession. The 2008-9 recession was not caused by the Bank of Canada; it was caused by terrible underwriting in the U.S. that spread around the world uh, due to the housing crash in the U.S. That wasn't due to the Bank of Canada. Uh, the 1981 recession that that was preceded by substantial increases in the overnight rate, um, or at the time it was called the bank rate, uh, that was caused by the Bank of Canada. And so I think that the 1981 recession is probably a better indicator of where we're at rather than the 2008-9 recession, which we have more recent experience with, or the pandemic recession, neither of which were caused by rate increases. They were caused by other factors outside of our economy. Yeah. Uh, anybody who remembers the 81, those are the days of the uh, 19% mortgages, uh, which uh, drove a lot of people crazy. Uh, and we're not heading there. I mean, you know, I, I know the Bank of Canada and the governor has maintained that, you know, we're going to stay the course here. It's going to hurt too bad, so sad. We're going to have to do this. I'm getting the sense, David, that the, the federal government, at least so far, uh, is is of the same mindset. I mean, as, as yesterday when uh, uh, Minister Freeland was meeting with uh, her American counterpart, uh, Yellen, uh, in Toronto, uh, they seem to, that seemed to be the theme is, look, at we, we're not going to jump here and start throwing money at people here because that's not the solution. But... Uh, it's, it's going to be very difficult for governments uh, to, to hold li that line if, in fact, that's the theory that they're going to take here to try to get us out of this. Yeah, I mean, we're not going to see 18 percent mortgage rates. Uh, and the reason why we're not going to see it is because we have double the household debt that we had in the 80s. So we have this massive private sector debt overhang. Uh, and the, the, the result of which is that you don't need uh, 18 percent mortgage rates to bankrupt households. You only need eight or nine percent. Um, now, whether we're going to get there or not in this present bout, I don't know. 
Um, but the issue is, is that because people have so much more mortgage debt now than they did then, even when you adjust for you know the inflation and the size of the economy, it means that we 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 might see similar effects: people not being able to make their mortgage payments, you know, rapid housing price declines like we saw in the early 1980s. Um, but we would but we wouldn't see interest rates high because we don't need them that high. I mean, much lower interest rate increases are are what would, in essence, get us into a recession and decrease inflation. It certainly looks quite right uh, that the government of Canada and the government of the U.S. aren't terribly concerned at this point with additional measures to combat inflation. They are largely looking to their central banks, the Bank of Canada and the Federal Reserve, to manage the inflation issue. You know, if we start to see both of these banks, either of these banks, engineer recessions, then it may warrant much more involvement from federal governments in supporting people who are losing their houses, supporting people who lost their jobs, and so on. The other thing to be aware of, of course, is that inflation and the issues we're facing here in Canada are hardly unique to Canada. They're, they're being faced everywhere. Uh, it's happening in the US, it's happening in the UK, it's happening in Europe. Interest rates are rising around the world. And even if, for instance, the Bank of Canada managed to have um, relatively accommodating monetary policy, so they didn't rapidly increase rates, it might not matter. Um, if the US Federal Reserve increased interest rates rapidly enough to tank their housing sector, which is actually one of the big areas where we export, where, where, where we have one of our biggest exports to the US, which is lumber, it may not matter. We may well inherit a recession through what's happening in other countries via the export channel. Um, and so it's, it's, a, it's just an extremely dangerous time for Canada, despite the fact that, you know, fundamentally looking at the economy today, it's quite strong. Unemployment is, is historically low. Real GDP growth is strong. We're not seeing strong wage growth, certainly nowhere in line with inflation. But if you want to get a job, now's a great time to get a job. Um, and that's that's the irony here is that we actually have a relatively strong economy right now. I want to swing back to the government spending because there seems to be a lot of debate about that right now. Uh, according to the budget, of course, that the, the, the Liberals gave us just a little while ago, they were anticipating 4.8% increase in government spending. Uh, the Scotiabank report suggests that that should probably be down around 2.5%. Is, is the government being a little overly zealous here with, with their spending? And, and and can they really start to cut corners and start reducing it like that? Because there's going to be a cost. That's essentially, isn't it, David? Somebody, the government's saying, yeah, that project we promised you, yeah, not going to happen. Not for a few years. Or that program uh, yeah, that, that I, might. Go ahead. Yeah, it's, it's, it's always helpful to say we should cut the budget by 4% or something like that. Uh, it's, you know, people say, yeah, that's great. We should cut that budget. Uh, the tr The trouble, though, is then. When you say, okay, well, to cut that budget, remember that hospital we were going to build across the street from your house? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. That, that's not coming anymore. And remember how we were going to improve the employment insurance program? Yeah, we're not going to get that anymore. Uh, remember how we're going to support low-income households? That's not happening anymore. And so this becomes the issue is that in the abstract, people are all for government cuts. Uh, in the specific, when it's their community and them or their families affected, they're much less for that. At this point, I mean, that kind of austerity... I think that discussion will become much a much more live discussion if we end up in a recession. Um, the fact is that government spent, fed, you know, Canadian federal government spending is not what's causing this. I mean, you know, inflation's happening in the U.S. as well. We didn't cause that. Inflation's happening in, in Europe and the U.K. as well. We didn't cause that either. Uh, what's causing that is the war in, in Ukraine. Now, you could, I mean, in some ways you could connect the democratic world's reaction to the war in Ukraine as one of the major drivers of inflation, which is to say we are unwilling to continue to do business with Putin. And so as a result, uh, oil prices have risen and we're seeing inflation. 
there is absolutely a connection there. If we had not reacted vigorously to the invasion of Ukraine, and we had treated it like the invasion of Crimea, where there was very little reaction in 2014, we probably wouldn't be seeing this inflation. So that, that is absolutely part of the story, is that this is a, a moral democratic choice in a way that this inflation increase in prices is happening. Uh, but that being said, I mean, this isn't being caused by federal government spending, Canadian federal government spending. This is happening around the world. It's in reaction to, to, to the war and, and its impact on the price of oil, absolutely, but also on other inputs like fertilizer, uh, of which both uh, Russia and Ukraine are big producers, as well as things like the price of wheat, uh, which is an important input into, into a variety of food products, which has gone up because Ukraine can't export its wheat uh, because its, uh, its seaports are being blockaded. And, and that's one of the things of, of that debate that doesn't really get talked about until until we start feeling the impacts, you know, because reducing spending, as you say, it's a mathematical exercise. And you can say, look what I've done. I've, I've dropped it 1.5%. Uh, but as you say, that program's not available. This isn't going to get built, et cetera, et cetera. There's a, there's a cost to that. Uh, you know, and we saw that happen in, here in Ontario, I think, in the mid-1990s. Uh, and, you know, we got smarter, I thought. But, you know, banks seem to have a different approach to this sort of thing. Uh, which is uh, rather problematic, I think, an awful lot of the time, especially because of all the stories we're hearing about the incredible profits these banks are making right now, yet they're preaching austerity to the government. Yeah, I mean, you know, and you listen, you listen to economists is, is in some ways the same way, right? We need to get inflation down, and so if a recession is the way to do it, then that's the way to do it. Uh, I mean, that that's fine if you're not the one losing their, your job, right? That's yeah. fine if you're the one who's getting a pay raise. Uh, for the folks at the bottom of the income spectrum who are not going to be the ones getting a pay raise and will lose their jobs, maybe that's not a good bargain. Um, and so, you know, I think it's worth remembering when we're talking about these dry economic debates that they have real impacts on people's lives. Um, you know, cutting government spending in particular ways. You know, it, it is it is easy to get government spending down. Stop paying out EI payments, right? Stop making transfers to low-income households. You know, a big part of government spending is those income transfers. Now, that's a terrible idea and would have terrible impacts on the economy, but it's not hard to, to sort of find more money. It's just that finding that more money is usually a terrible idea. And once you get to the specifics, people, folks say, ah, you know, maybe I, maybe I do think that we should support lower income Canadians who lost their jobs or, you know, low income seniors and so on. Uh, and so and if we, we haven't really seen that debate federally yet. I, I mean, as I say, you know, at this point, the economy is is going well. I think when we look at the uh, revenue figures when the full revenue figures come in from the last fiscal year and potentially for the first couple quarters of this fiscal year, they'll be very good. They'll be over like the revenue figures will be over what were expected uh, even a few months ago, both federally as well as provincially. And so you, you'll see at the provincial level, we've already seen surprise surpluses as a, re as a result of inflation and we'll likely see reduced deficits. We're not going to see surpluses, but we'll see reduced deficits in the short run federally. And the reason for that is that, is that, um, government revenues are are pretty closely tied to nominal GDP and nominal GDP includes inflation. And so as inflation goes up, government revenues go up roughly in lockstep. And so that is good in the short term for governments. Now, if we see a recession, it, all of that turns in reverse um, mm -hmm. and government expenditures go up because you've got to support EI and that sort of thing. David, always great to get your perspective. Thanks for spending some time with us again today. Sure. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. So by the chilling testimony, uh, watching the uh, uh, House Select Committee about the uh, January 6th insurrection on the Capitol in Washington, 
Shea Moss told American lawmakers yesterday her life was upended when former President Donald Trump and his allies falsely accused her and her mother of pulling fraudulent ballots from a suitcase in Georgia. The uh, former elections worker told the House Select Committee that uh, the, insur- that the Capitol was defeated, uh, and they latched onto this footage, that they called surveillance footage, uh, from November 2020, and accused her and her mother, Ruby Freeman, of committing voter fraud. Freeman said in tape testimony that she just didn't feel safe anywhere she went. The President of the United States is supposed to represent every American, not to target one, but he targeted me. Chilling testimony, and uh, many others, too, that uh, were involved. And we know the names, of course, from some of the uh, past incidents. So what is going on, and where is this leading? So pleased to welcome back to the program Brian J. Karen. Brian, of course, is a political commentator for CNN and a columnist for Salon.com and The Washington Diplomat, and, of course, host of the podcast called Just Ask the Question. Uh, Brian, great to have you back on the show. Uh, you're watching the proceedings, I know. Have you, have you seen <laughs> bad, anything like this? There? I mean, but... yeah. I know some people are trying to, you know, draw a parallel with this and Watergate. Uh, I, I I don't know if that's an apt uh, comparison or not, but I mean, this the stuff we're hearing is really bizarre. Well, it's it is comparable to Watergate. It's actually more chilling and more frightening than Watergate. Watergate was an attempt to subvert the government, and what we're seeing in the January six hearings is an actual uh, successful attempt to subvert the government, and frightening and chilling because it's still going on. And I don't think that. Uh, that the January 6th committee, even when it wraps up, will get to the bottom of all the problems that occurred during the Donald Trump administration. Uh, and I know what this does is validate an awful lot of the stories were, that were out there at the time, uh, especially you know with Georgia and, and, the, and the pressure. We all know about the phone call that Trump made, of course, uh, to uh, Raffsenberger and others uh, to try to basically find the votes or try to cancel out votes and things of this nature. Uh, but but to actually see and hear some of this 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 testimony and and some of the evidence they've got on here, I mean they're, they're building a case here. But to what end? I mean they can't really do much about this at at that level at the political level, can they? No. Once the hearings are done, that's it. It's just an expose of what occurred. What has to occur then is for charges to be filed from the Justice Department. What we don't know is how far along the Justice Department is. The only thing we've really heard from um, the Attorney General, Merrick Garland, is that they're listening and watching with interest. What we don't know is whether or not there's a grand jury already impaneled to investigate this problem, how far the investigation has gone, and who plan- who will be indicted. It's obvious from the testimony so far that Rudy Giuliani is probably going to be wearing orange at some point in his life, as, as will Eastman, John Eastman, the uh, attorney who suggested that uh, Trump adopt this strategy, even though he knew that the strategy was constitutionally uh, unsound. And of course, that leads back to Donald Trump. And Trump is going to try and pull the mob boss tactic that, you know, he didn't ever directly request that somebody do something. But the problem is, is there's plenty of tape already showing. And and in fact, it was uh, Ronna McDaniels who was taped and we saw yesterday in testimony directly linking Donald Trump to some of the insurrectionist activities that will probably end up being his downfall. So I would say all three of them might go down, and we'll we'll see if and when uh, those uh, those indictments come down. 
But he's, there's a, a Teflon aspect to Trump, though, isn't there, Brian? I mean, it, I, I think for those that wanted to see him have his day in court and, and perhaps maybe, you know, pay for some of his, his, his most egregious sins, uh, we were looking at the Southern District of New York for the longest time. And Cy Vance Jr. was running that investigation. Uh, and, and we thought, oh, something's got to come of that. I mean, we heard all these stories about the things that were going on and the payments that were made. And and as soon as Vance retires, uh, all of a sudden the case goes cold and basically say they're not going to prosecute. Is, this, is it likely the same thing could happen here? It, it's, it's possible, but I think it's too far. And I think the uh, no one, by the way, is probably more upset about the, the, the Cy Vance investigation failing other than no one is more upset than Michael Cohen, his former fixer, who uh, testified and went before and gave them, you know, a bunch of information. I don't think he ever went before the uh, grand jury, but he did turn over a lot of information on Donald Trump. I, I don't think anybody's more frustrated than him about that, but it's a little different. I think the Georgia investigation into the uh, um, into what occurred, and we saw some of the testimony on the Georgia investigation yesterday. Uh, I think Georgia is an area where Donald Trump is still very vulnerable and could be indicted. Um, I think that the it depends the whole thing rests when at the end of the day on Merrick Garland, what he will do with it after this after this uh, hearing. And if he does his job and he has every indication of doing his job, then I think you're going to see Donald Trump um, having to be indicted and possibly facing charges. Let's talk about Merrick Garland because there's uh, some pressure on, on on him right now, and not just to decide whether or not to pursue this, but of course the Republicans have jumped on this, and uh, you know they're, they're going to say, well, this is just venge- vengeful actions on Merrick Garland because you know the, he had that the Obama, of course, recommendation to go on the Supreme Court, and and the Republicans blocked that, and and now he's going to pay these guys back. I mean, that's that's one of the storylines that the Republicans are singing these days. Is is Garland uh, going to be impacted by something like that? Is there going to be political pressure? No, to maybe I don't just think he'll let sleeping dogs lie. About that, I, I think it, you're going to hear a lot of stories from a lot of different people with a lot of different uh, narratives, especially from the Republicans as they try to dodge the fact that there are seditious bunch of traitors. Uh, there are still a hundred or so uh, people who believe the big lie that Donald Trump, uh, you know, promoted that he somehow got screwed out of the election. And it's obvious by watching the hearings that not only did that not occur, but it was Donald Trump who was trying to steal the election. And so to cover their own uh, backside, you're going to hear members of the GOP say anything they can to try and dirty the waters. But uh, at some point in time, facts do out. And those facts plainly show what occurred in this country and how dangerously close we came to losing a democracy. We were talking at the beginning of the conversation here about any comparators between this and, and Watergate. Uh, one th- occurrence in Watergate that I, I don't know is going to happen here uh, was for the Republicans on that committee to finally see the light and say, wait a second here, this 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 is bad, and these guys are guilty. Uh, you know, Lowell Weicker and, and, and Howard Baker, two of the, the major Republicans on that Watergate committee, finally realized that, yeah, we've, we've got to go after these guys. And they, they stopped playing partisan politics almost immediately. Uh, I don't know that that's going to happen with this committee. Well, this committee, you're not going to see that kind of partisan politics because most of the GOP decided not to play. It's yeah. Liz Cheney who's uh, holding up the, she's being the stalwart. She's the one who's 
holding up the ideals of the Republican Party. And if you look closely at these hearings, you will see that most of the witnesses that have been called are Republicans, including uh, Rusty Powers, who was, you know, a, who was a, for all intents and purposes a Donald Trump supporter. He voted for Donald Trump. He supported Donald Trump. He told Donald Trump the only thing he wouldn't do was break the law for him. And for that, uh, when he wouldn't do what Donald Trump wanted him to do, his neighbors, his friends, people he's known for 30, 40 years turned on him and threatened him. So the GOP, in my estimation, has lost their ability to to guide this narrative by refusing to um, be a part of it and by calling the Republicans in, all these Republicans, to testify against Donald Trump. You're seeing, you're actually, one of the things you're seeing in this hearing is the Republican Party trying to cure itself of its own cancer, and you're watching Democrats trying to assist them in that effort to get rid of the poison within the GOP that is uh, antithetical to our Constitution and is pro-authoritarianism and, and, and uh, fascism. And it's a fascinating thing to watch on many different levels. They're signaling to Christians, like through Powers, saying, you know, he was a man of faith. So you're signaling the Christians that, hey, if you really are a Christian, support this uh, effort. You're seeing the Republicans who support this effort come forward and testify to say, look, this is not the party that we wanted to be or that we were, and it's been uh, taken over by Donald Trump and extremists. And you're seeing the Democrats trying to, uh, at the same time, assist in holding a democracy together. Fascinating on, on many levels. Well, and that's maybe, I guess, the, the major explanation as to why so many people are, I heard one commentator say, throwing Trump under the bus every time they testify. Uh, but they are giving damning testimony. And, and we're hearing some of that from people that maybe we didn't think we were going to hear, that they would circle the wagons around Trump and simply say, well, I don't recall. And, you know, all the dodges that we heard during the impeachment hearings over the last couple of years, uh, they seem ready, willing, and able to talk about what happened. Yeah, and I think they want to talk about what I referred to uh, Powers' testimony as, uh, um, as being a confession. And I think for some of these people, it's they, they finally get to come out and talk about how they were you know, destroyed and how they were hurt by what they did. The most chilling testimony is from a, a campaign worker and her mother. Uh, everyone's going to remember Ruby from now on. Uh, but, but Lady Ruby, I mean... The testimony that all the people that you saw in that picture, they showed a picture of all those poll workers who had worked, you know, for elections for years and years and years. None of them are there, which underscores the real the real danger in these hearings is having people who work hard for the American cause, abandoning that cause and allowing uh, Donald Trump supporters and other extremists to take over. Uh, elections. And at that point in time, if you cannot have a fair election in the United States, this country is done. How's this being received? How's this playing out with the, uh, with the public? You know, I, I, it was a start. Like it, was, it was in the Washington Post, I guess I was reading a story over the weekend uh, where they went to, I think it was Nevada and a couple of other states uh, that were Republican states, nonetheless. Uh, and, and they were t- using words like this is disgusting. And if it, but they were talking about the hearings themselves. They still love Trump. And they're just they're just they're just wired now to ignore anything that's that in any way uh, puts negative uh, feelings about Trump in, in in theirs. And 
I'm, I'm asking this in the context, of course, that there's an election coming up in a couple of months, of course, the midterms. Uh, are people going to get turned off by, by the Trumpism and the things that have been going on? Are they believing what they're hearing in this testimony? Well, the, the first key issue is whether or not they're watching this, these hearings. 20 million people turned into the first one. I don't know how many of you watched uh, yesterday's. Uh, the daytime hearings don't uh, garner the uh, ratings that the uh, primetime hearings do. Uh, but if you get past, are people watching? Then you have to ask, are the right people watching? And then you have to ask, is the right action going to be taken because of the hearings? Right now, I'd venture to say that not enough people in this country are paying attention to the hearings. That's that's a, a concern. But if the right people are, are paying attention to the hearings, then, then it really won't matter. For many people, their decisions have already been made about Donald Trump. Uh, a majority of the people in the United States want him charged, 60, more than 60 percent in a recent poll. Uh, and many of them are all already of the opinion that Donald Trump is a crook and they don't need any further information to prove it. And then you have those who believe that no matter what Donald Trump does, even if the facts show him to be a crook, that he's not and that he's, he's, they still like him. And that's not going to change. What you're hoping for is those who have uh, an opinion that is movable, that the needle moves. And the, when these hearings began, Norm Eisen, one of the, the uh, guys who, who dissected it and constructed it, and, and, you know, I sat down and talked to Norm, and, and he said there are three possible outcomes. The best possible outcome is that it leads to indictments for the major players in, in the conspiracy to defraud the United States, which is what they talked about yesterday as being the charge they would go after Donald Trump on. Secondly, the middle ground for them was if the needle doesn't move enough to get indictments, that the needle moves enough to ensure that the Trumpers do not get into office in the midterm elections, which would also destroy the United States. And the worst possible outcome would be the needle didn't move at all and that the Republicans take back the House and the Senate. Then we would look at two years of impeachment uh, of hearings on Merrick Garland and, and uh, Joe Biden in this country will be gone. So that those are the scenarios he's looking at, and right now he still believes that the best possible scenario, indictments will, will occur, and that indictments may occur before the midterm elections in Georgia, and possibly some of them may occur uh, before the midterm elections out of uh, Washington, D.C. in the Justice Department. For that, we'll have to see. Exactly. Well, as you mentioned, uh, so succinctly, uh, the future of the country it depends on what's going to be happening here. So we're watching with great interest. Brian, always great to get you uh, and your opinions on here. I don't know how busy you are these days. Thanks so much for this. Uh, let's stay in touch and we appreciate your time today. Sounds good anytime. You know, <laughs> you happy to do it. Thanks so much, Brian. Brian J. Karam, of course, from uh, CNN, of course, Washington Diplomat and uh, Salon.com. I have some great pieces on Salon.com about what's going on down there with all this mess in Washington. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.